This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. In a world without a single unified voice, humanity has been left searching for answers to the unknown. Now, one podcast has the power to change that and to spread its voice across the earth for all mankind to hear. Welcome to Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk Podcast. We interrupt this program to annoy you and make things generally irritating. Hey everybody and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. My name is Sean Ray and uh, things are a little bit different here in the virtual studio tonight because as I look across the virtual table from me, the chair that is usually occupied by John Irons has a different person in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And of course he's no stranger to this show, but I am joined by one of the hosts of the World War G podcast, Mr. Troy Wood. How are you, Troy? I'm doing pretty well. Um, we're joining forces tonight because uh, we're going to start a new series here on the show that I'm hoping will become like a recurring monthly thing where Troy and I are going to discuss like actual films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not necessarily the, the, the genre fiction kind of stuff that we normally talk about here. We're going to do a deep dive into some of the significant films of Hollywood history um, right now I'm just calling it the Cosmic Potato Classic Film Series. That works. Yeah. So, uh, th- this actually came about because of something that you were doing, Troy. Yeah. Um, so I've always been a, a pretty big, uh, movie buff, uh, cinema file, but I'm only that from about the year 2000 onward. Mm-hmm. And so when I would have conversations with people about movies that always bring up movies that I'd never seen these really classic ones. Um, and I pretty much just have to fake it and pretend I've, I've seen it or tell them that I haven't seen it and get the, the reaction. So I decided that I was going to go through IMDb's 100 greatest movies of all time list and watch all of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm kind of working my way through. <laughs> and you're kind of like me where you've been around long enough that you've heard of these movies so many times. You know who's in them. You know right. who made them. You know what happens in them, even though you've never actually sat down and watched a lot of them. Correct, yes. Yeah. So, uh, when I created this podcast... I kind of had it in my mind that we were going to do a show about all film. And we've done that a lot because we do a lot of these lists like, you know, what's the best car chase in a film? And sometimes we'll pull something out that was made back in the 60s or the 50s or something like that. Right. But most of the time, 
we focus on genre stuff, science fiction, Marvel films, Star Wars, that kind of stuff, because that's just kind of stuff that we watch for the most part. So I think this series will be interesting because it's two guys that like film, but don't necessarily know a lot about it. (laughs) Right. So yeah, these are, uh, these are basically grown up movies that we're watching. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to having a chance to going back and watching some of this stuff. And some of these films I've seen before, but it's been a mm-hmm. long time since I've seen them. And I actually I pulled up the list today, just kind of going back through it. I and I discovered that there's actually two lists, so we might kind oh, of really? go, go back and forth. There's one called the Hundred Greatest Movies of All Time, and that's the one that we're re- really focusing on. There's yeah. also one called the Hundred Best Movies of All Time. Oh. Now it's actually got um, like some newer stuff on it, but there is some classic movies on here that um, are not on the other list, like Metropolis from 1927. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to just to name a few. Um, let's see. I mean, it's got Braveheart, and it's got the the Great Dictator is on both, and then you got Full Metal Jacket, you know, things like that. So we, right. we may swap up and go back and forth, and also had an idea that um, some of these films that contain actors that were in a lot of classic films, but only one or two of them show up on this uh, list, I thought maybe, well, one week or one month, we might uh, take one of the movies from the list, but then watch two other movies with that same actor at different points in his career or something Mm -hmm. like that and just talk about, you know, talk about that actor or something like that. So there's a lot of ideas that we can go back and forth on, but... um, Okay, so so we're not yeah, we're not gonna be a prisoner to the list. We're not in any hurry to get through it because even if we did if we did three a month and we did a hundred movies, it'd still take, you know, a couple of years to <laughs> Yes to get yeah. through it. So um so we're gonna add things here and there. We may change the numbers up a little bit because uh for instance, uh The Godfather is number one on the list. But the Spoilers. Godfather, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the Godfather part, which that may change by the time we get to it. You know, I don't know how often they change the order of this list. But the Godfather sure, yeah, part not. two is much further down on the list, so it doesn't make sense to me to review the Godfather part two before you've reviewed the Godfather. So we may right. swap, swap some of the orders up a little bit. But um, okay, so this month we watched the first three, or actually, it's the last three films on the on the. Uh, on the list because we're starting at a hundred and moving our way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, number one hundred on the list is Yankee Doodle Dandy from nineteen forty two, starring uh, James Cagney, Joan Leslie, yeah. Walter Houston, Richard Wharf, and directed by Michael Curtis. And uh, this movie was about the life and times of George George M. Cohen, who was a very famous writer, singer, actor, comedian back in the early twentieth century. Uh, just over overall, what do you think of this movie? I really liked this movie a lot. I was thoroughly entertained. Um, when I started the list and saw that this one was on it, I one thought that it was going. It was. It wasn't going to be that entertaining because it was, you know, back in 1942 and. Yeah. You know, those those movies back then can be, I mean, let's face it now, hit or miss. Um, 
so I thought, okay, well, let's just get through this. But I was <laughs> really, really entertained. I thought this movie is great. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, when I saw it on the list, I said, of course, they're going to start off with a musical. But mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't a musical in the typical sense of the word where you think of characters that just break into song for no reason in the middle of the story. Right, when, yeah. When they sang, they had a reason. They were on stage. You know, they were doing a show or something like that. So Yeah, they, they were doing an actual performance. Yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, a couple of things that I have to admit about this movie. First of all, I'd never heard of George M. Cohen. I don't know why. Or, actually, it's Cohan is how, how it's pronounced. But Cohan, yeah. I don't know why, because I looked him up on Wikipedia after I watched the film, and he was pretty important in, uh, <laughs> in entertainment was. back in the day. But, uh, you know, he he's written a lot of the the songs that, when we're kids, we sing around the 4th of July. He wrote a lot of those songs, like... Like I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy and uh, over there, you know things mm-hmm. like he, he wrote those. Uh, give my regards to Broadway, yeah, tons of stuff. So, yeah, I I had never heard of him either. Um, and while I was watching the movie, I was also at the same time, you know, like you, I I was looking him up and seeing how much of this movie kind of followed his life. And from what I saw, it was it's pretty close. Uh, this it seems like this the film captures George Cohan's life fairly closely, which was I thought was was cool because a lot of times a lot of movies will take liberties, you know they'll they're, they'll exaggerate a lot of things. Um, but from what I can tell, this this thing pretty true. Yeah, they changed they changed a few things. Uh, mm-hmm. one, the the major thing that I saw that they changed was the fact that that the the scene where his father passes away, it's about halfway through the film. Mm-hmm. They make a statement that his wife and his daughter had already passed away when in real yeah. life his daughter was still alive when he died. <laughs> you know, so I don't know why they decided to change that. Oh, it, it, yeah, ahead. yeah, it was it was his um, uh, Cohan's. Uh, um, mom and sister. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that he just kind of has this throwaway line. We're just like, oh, and uh, and he's talking all of a sudden. He's just like, oh, and my mother and sister are now gone. I'm like, whoa, whoa you just okay? I guess they're dead now. Yeah, all right. Yeah, they never showed him <laughs> pass. And uh, and looking him up, you know, his uh, his sister did pass away at a young age. Yeah, but she didn't pass until after his father had died. So I don't know why they made that choice, unless it's just that they wanted that scene between just the two of them, which is a good scene. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. a heartbreaking scene there. But um, another thing I have to admit is I'd never seen a James Cagney movie before this. Yeah, same with me. And I, know I, he, I he's like a big he's he was like a big name in Hollywood back in the back in the day. So yeah, the the only. Um, thing I knew about James Cad- Cagney, the only introduction I knew is, uh, well, I, I have a couple. Um, I, I would watch Looney Tunes all the time, and yeah. Bugs Bunny would talk about James Cagney or do impressions of James Cagney. And I also knew him from uh, the 1990 uh, Ninja Turtles movie, <laughs> yeah. where <laughs> Michelangelo does an impression of James Cagney. Uh, you know, the whole, oh, you dirty rat, you which, killed my brother. Which completely yeah. went over our heads when we were watching it back then. Completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they decided to throw a James Cagney reference back in 1990, but 
whatever. He was a uh, he was be- I think he was best known for making gangster movies because that's mm-hmm. the, every time I, that I hear like a list of actors that are in a lot of gangster movies, James Cagney's name comes up in that list. I know he did a he did a film called uh, I want to say it was called Little Caesar. Uh, back in the day, we may, may we might throw that on this list at some point. I don't know, but um, I mean we're at the point now where I point out to the audience once again that we're not film historians. We're <laughs> correct, we're, yeah, yeah. We're just a couple of guys that watch a lot of TV, and 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 sometimes some of the things that we say may be a lot of crap, you know. But <laughs> but uh, but I think James Cagney was best known for being uh, for playing gangsters. You know, Edward G. Robinson is another name that mm-hmm. comes up in in gangster movies a lot and stuff like that. So, right. Well, I mean, Cagney. You know, he was in um, uh, the Public Enemy. He was in Angels with Dirty Faces. Uh, both pretty big uh, gangster movies in, yeah, in yeah. the history of Hollywood. Yeah. And. Um, one thing that kind of struck me in the in the beginning of this movie, it didn't it didn't sit with me the whole time. But in the beginning, when he's having the conversation with uh, the president, mm-hmm. and he's he's kind of got the soft spoken way about him. He was kind of reminding me of Robin Williams when Robin Williams would do a serious role. You know the way that he that he had like the soft spoken way about him, and he would his voice would kind of sound like it was rambling, but it wasn't really rambling. You know, it's it's just kind of, I don't know. It just struck me as that. Yeah. He, he had that, that very, you know, that 1940s way of speaking to where they, they, they talk really, really fast and they just keep going and going and going. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. There, there was a very, uh, interesting, I don't know if he was making a choice, but it was, he, he had a very interesting tone in his voice when he was speaking very seriously, uh, very quietly. But yeah, you're right. It was it was a lot like uh, Robin Williams. Um, what I was going to say about the beginning of this movie, there, I I had that there were a couple scenes in the beginning that really um, shocked me. Uh, there was one where, you know, cause they follow his family, mm-hmm. the four Cohans, I think they were called. Yeah. And so the, the movie starts with, you know, his birth and then goes on to his childhood. And there was a point where his entire family appears in blackface. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which I know that, back then that was normal. It happened all yeah. the time back then. I don't know yeah, how often I, it happened at the point that they were that the that the film was made. I don't know, but yeah, that. right. <laughs> and, and you know they they were doing it. It was early, like early nineteenth century vaudeville act. You know, and and yeah, they did that. But it it was uh, it took me took me by surprise to see children in blackface. Yeah, that was uh, n- not something I needed to see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we're yeah. looking at this from 2018, and yeah. and if somebody did that now, it would be terrible. But for, I don't know why it was so acceptable back then. But yeah, it, it, it's a it's a strange thing to have ever happened. But yeah, to see it to see it now mm-hmm. in, in a film was yeah that was strange. But um, let me just kind of go through a little bit of the plot uh, for mm-hmm. people that haven't seen the movie. Um, 
it it picks up at the beginning of World War II, and uh, Cohen has come out of retirement because he's going to be in a musical about Roosevelt. And after his first show, he gets summoned to see the president at the White House, and of course he thinks he's going to be chewed out for making fun of him or something like that. Right. And uh, that's another thing at the at the, at this point in the movie, he's playing a he's playing a man that's much older than he than he will be playing in the rest of the film because most of this film is in flashback and uh and so that that may be the answer as to why he's choosing to do some of that uh tone you were talking about before because he's trying to sound older than he's right, going to sound yeah. later in the film he plays this character from a young man all the way to an old man and really it, he doesn't change a whole lot <laughs> as far as his <laughs> appearance you know so uh not really no he's uh yeah he his parents are in show business when he's born they he and his sister are part of an act with his parents called the the Four Cohans, and uh, his father's played by Walter Houston, who I recognized immediately. But it's not because I've ever seen anything that he was in. It's because he's the spitting image of his son, who was uh, John Houston, who's been in tons of stuff, mm. and mm-hmm. uh, Angelica Houston also. If you've ever seen uh, either one of the Adams Family films, Angelica Houston played Morticia in both of those movies. Oh right, I didn't know. I didn't know that was her uh, her father. Yeah, yeah, he's her father. Oh. And um, okay, there's there's a there's a scene towards the beginning, like you were talking about with the blackface. There's also a scene towards the beginning where George's father is contemplating which part of his body he can beat, right, to, to not leave to not leave marks or mess up his show. And all like, no, don't hit him in the face. No, don't hit him in the back. You know that kind of stuff, which is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. There was a line he said that made me laugh. Um, cause he decided to to spank him, and he said something like, "Well, uh, there's no talent there, or something like that." And that's how we, that's where he decided to to yeah. hit him. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> that that actually made that actually made me laugh. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's another one of those jokes that wouldn't make it into a movie now. But, no. Yeah, but back then we were beating our children fairly regularly, so. <laughs> oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> so, um, he okay. So George meets his wife, who's played by an actress named uh, Joan Leslie, who she she acted all the way into her nineties. I think mm. she just recently passed away in two thousand fifteen, but it was kind of creepy because she was obviously a lot younger than he was. She was seventeen when they made this movie, and he was forty. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> so that was kind of which I know they used younger actresses back then because they just they they wanted their women to be young, and she was seventeen and she played this character from a young girl all the way into her sixties, mm-hmm. which was the makeup and everything wasn't the way that it is now. Basically, when they're playing an old lady, they just put a wig on them and change their clothes. <laughs> and they throw a pair of glasses on them. Yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. So. Uh, they go all the way through his life and they show some of the accomplishments he made in the entertainment industry. He wrote a play called Little Johnny Jones that debuted some of his most famous songs. And um, ultimately, they they show that the reason and people, uh, I have to warn you, we are gonna we are gonna kind of spoil these movies a little bit. So we're I mean, yeah. these movies are decades old. So uh, yes, yeah, spoilers for a movie that was back in 1942. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the way I plan on doing this is every every episode that we do at the end of the show, I'll tell you the movies that we're going to watch next time. So hopefully you'll have time over the next month to go watch those three movies, and you can come back yeah. and, and join us. But um, 
Okay, so he he was summoned to the White House not to be chewed out, but to give him the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, which I don't think is normally done just in private with just the president. I, they usually do that in front of a bunch of photographers and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think I like the movie. Like I said, I'm not really big on musicals, but this wasn't your typical musical. The, the songs had a reason to be sung. And it mm-hmm. was, and it was about a real person, and it was a real person that I didn't know about. So I learned a few things, and um, I actually went back and researched a little bit after I watched the film, and was able to learn a few more things. And uh, I think James Cagney did a did a really good job playing the part. Uh, I, but yeah, I liked that. I thought yeah. I thought it was okay. I, I was a little hesitant, like I said, hearing it was a musical. It's it's not musical in the strictest sound of the word. It's not like Sound of Music or something like that. But the characters, um, you know, like I said, they don't break in the song all the time. I, the old vaudeville actors back then were as famous as like TV actors are now. So mm-hmm. learning about somebody that nobody ever talks about now, but was apparently a big deal back then, was was interesting. Uh, they didn't have TMZ following their actors around everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they they just. But you would see their picture in the newspaper all the time. What were you gonna say, Troy? Oh, I was gonna. Um, I was gonna say, you know, you go back and, and and watch this, and most of the performances in in this movie, they're they're okay, they're they're fine, um, they're pretty standard actors and actresses, but James Cagney, he, there's a reason that he is an Ho- a Hollywood icon. He he just oozes charisma throughout mm-hmm. this entire film. Um, I mean, he he's acting his butt off. I mean, just crushing it in every scene he's in. And, I mean, he is singing. He's dancing. He's, I mean, it, you don't get that uh, really with, with actors nowadays. I mean, you do have those actors that sing like Hugh Jackman and stuff like that, but you know these big musical dance numbers, and man, he was just. It, I'm I'm upset that it's the first time I've ever seen one of his films because he is absolutely, utterly watchable in every scene he's in in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I've got a few. I wrote down a few facts about the film that I thought just you know trivia tidbits or whatever that I thought I'd, I'd, I'd share. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, George M. Cohan, the the real guy, wanted Fred Astaire to play him. Uh, number two, James Cagney was the first actor to win an Oscar for a musical performance for the for this movie. Oh wow! And uh, the real Cohan, the real Cohan died uh, right before the movie was released. He they were able to show him the movie. He had cancer. He had like stomach cancer or something like that. Uh, they showed him the movie before the premiere, and he liked it, but some of the differences between the movie and his real life kind of stood out to him, so his comment at the end of it was, that was a good movie, who was it about? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but That's yeah, funny. but then he did, he, he passed away about a month or so before they actually did the premiere, but uh, James Cagney says in a voiceover that, he says, I was a good Democrat even in those days. Cohan was a Republican. 
<laughs> so uh, uh, Cagney was 11 years older than Rosemary DeCamp, who played his mother in the movie. Um, That's funny. Yeah. 15 years later, in 1955, Cagney played Cohan again in a film called The Seven Little Foys. And George M. Cohan was not awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was given the Congressional Gold Medal by Act of Congress. But he was hmm. the first entertainer to ever receive that honor. So, And didn't his... Uh, 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 didn't James Cagney's sister play... His sister in in the uh, movie. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, I also, that was interesting. this was the first movie to ever have someone portray a president who was still alive and in office. That was something oh. that I found interesting. They, they, he, he played Roosevelt, but I don't think they ever actually called him Roosevelt. I think they just called him Mister President. Yeah, I. It took me a minute to to realize what president they were talking about. I kind of had to. Think about the the time period and what year it was before I realized. Oh, that's that's FDR. Oh, yeah. got it. Okay. And they only showed him from the back. Yeah. I didn't know if there was some kind of a rule back then that you're not supposed to portray the president or. or yeah, something it, like it, that, re- but. it remind me of um, when they did Steinbrenner in Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looked a lot like that. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, that guy that uh, that that played FDR, I think he was a big deal too. I, I read that, but I don't have it in front of me too mm. me either. But I think he was a big deal back then, even though they never they never showed his face. Yeah. But uh, after these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, you listener, do I have everybody's attention now? Do you like professional wrestling? What? If so, you'll love Review Mania, where Rob and Zach break down. Every WrestleMania, you hear about great epic matches by the likes of Hulk Hogan. And what's it gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh yeah! Ric Flair. Just stealing! Woo! Wheeling dealing! Limousine right! Jet flying! Son of a gun! Bret Hart. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be! Shawn Michaels. Bret Hart! You are a zero, my hero. John Cena. The champ is here! Brock Lesnar. Suplex City, bitch. And so many more that I don't have time to even name. Check out Review-O-Mania right here on CosmicPotato.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spreaker. It's a happening. Right here on CosmicPotato.com. Arriba! Hey everybody, I'm Troy. And I'm AJ. And we're the hosts of the World War G podcast. And we know Sean and John do great things, but if you need just that little bit more nerd in your life. A little bit more geek in your week. Then head on over to worldwarg.podbean.com where we talk about everything from movies and television. Comic books and video games. Check us out at worldwarg.podbean.com. Back to you, Sean. Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Herald Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper 
of how I'm yearning to mingle with that old-time throng. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there ere long. Okay, so the the next movie on our list, number 99, is uh, North by Northwest, starring Cary Grant, Eva, Eva Marie Saint, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to watch a lot of Hitchcock movies in this series. Yeah, it seems that way. And not, I mean, not all of his movies, because there's some that's not on the list that I have seen before. Like, I don't think The Birds is on the list, and I don't, I don't think Dial M for Murder. Dial M for Murder is a really great movie. We may have to put it on the <laughs> we may have to put it on the list. But uh but yeah, if you go through this list, I would say probably six or seven of these movies are Hitchcock movies, but mm-hmm. um Alfred Hitchcock is a guy that I've always considered myself to be a fan of. I I mean, I can't say I've seen everything that he that he ever made, but I've seen several of his movies for the most part and I've always I've always enjoyed him mostly. Um, yeah, he had a, a great way of telling a story that a lot of filmmakers today try to emulate. Um, he gave you enough information throughout the story to keep you guessing, especially if he's doing one of his mysteries, keeps you guessing about the who done it or whatever, but never enough to where you could really figure out, uh, you know, what the catch was until the, until the end of it. Um, but have you watched a lot of Hitchcock? I have. Um, I mean, yeah, some of the ones on here, like uh, Rear Window, I've seen. Um, the Birds, obviously, Psycho. Uh, I've seen a lot of, of Hitchcock films. This is one I've actually never seen. This is the first time I've ever I've ever watched North by Northwest. And funny thing, I always thought Jimmy Stewart was in this movie. Yeah. Always. Even even three quarters of the way through the movie, as I'm watching it, I thought I was watching Jimmy Stewart. I didn't realize that was Cary Grant. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart was in, um, I mean, I know he was in Rear Window, but uh, he was in The Man Who Knew Too Much. And I think Alfred Hitchcock actually made that movie twice, The Man Who Knew mm. Too Much, because he made it early in his career, and then he went back and he made it again later in his career when he thought that he was more established and could do some of the things that he had wanted to do before. So he just made the same movie again. Yeah. So that was interesting. And then, uh, but yeah, he, he actually wanted, I, let me go back. He didn't want Jimmy Stewart for this movie. Jimmy Stewart wanted to be in this movie when they were filming vertigo. Uh, he told Jimmy Stewart about this movie and Jimmy assumed that he was telling him this because he wanted him to play the lead. Right. So the whole time, you know, that they were planning the movie, Jimmy Stewart thought he was going to play the lead. Alfred Hitchcock didn't want him to play the lead, but didn't want to tell him that. You know, he didn't want to hurt his feelings and 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 not be able to work with him in the future. So he kind of uh, just waited him out until Stewart uh, got a got a role in another movie, and then he just started filming it with <laughs> Cary Grant. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you know, I also used to watch. There was a show that came on Nick at Night when I was a kid, that was made back in the '60s. Actually, that was uh, it was Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it was a mm-hmm. a anthology type show. It's kind of like kind of like the Twilight Zone, but without the science fiction aspect to it. It's just like murder mysteries and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I like that show. I remember there being one episode 
probably the first one where the whole episode was filmed from the point of view of this guy that had had a stroke or had some kind of a medical event and everybody thought he was dead. But the entire show, you're watching it through his eyes and hearing his thoughts because he's not dead. He just can't move and he can't blink and all that kind of stuff. And it was, as a kid watching that, it was terrifying thinking, oh, they're about right. to they're about to bury this guy and he's not dead, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was one of Hitchcock's murder mysteries. Cary Grant plays an advertising executive by the name of Roger Thornhill, and there's a case of mistaken identity. And a bunch of thugs think that he's somebody named George Kaplan. And they kidnap yeah. him and they take him to a house where they, he's interrogated by a spy named Van Damme. And they, they try to kill him. They try to kill him in like the dumbest way you can try to kill somebody. He's <laughs> like, let's pour a, a, a bottle of whiskey down his throat and then try and make him crash off of a cliff. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So I forgot they did that. Yeah, that was, um, that was ridiculous. I didn't. I, I guess you're right. Just just now realizing it that they were trying to have him like drive off a cliff or something, and yeah, I was con- I was kind of confused by that scene. But all right, and he was actually able. I mean, that he's able to drive basically off the cliff, but then turn the car and come back the other way while he's that drunk was. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a strange choice, but he. Um, I think Cary Grant did a great job with this uh, role because it's a, it's a mm-hmm. serious role. It's a murder mystery, but there was a lot of comedy interspersed in it too, especially like in the scenes where he's drunk here at the beginning, you know, that he had a lot of funny lines and things like that. I was actually chuckling, you know, when I, when I watched those scenes, but um, we, yeah. we find out that Kaplan is not a real person. He was uh, made up by the, by, is it the FBI or the CIA? I I was unclear on that. I I just knew it was some government agency came up with this George Kaplan um, character. Yeah, they're trying to infiltrate Van Damme, but once they find out that that Van Damme thinks that Thornhill is Kaplan, they decide not to go in and save Thornhill because they think it'll compromise the other operatives that they have uh, in the operation and stuff. So, right. Um, I mean, I won't completely spoil the whole movie, even though it's about sixty years old. But, <laughs> but he uh, he eventually meets uh, Eve Kendall on a train, and they have some fun together. And uh, this is something that you don't see in a lot of uh, a lot of modern films because we get yeah. we get nearly halfway into the movie before we meet the leading lady of the film. You know, that, which was which was a strange choice in my opinion, but I guess it I guess it worked and and. Yeah, that. Go ahead. That was surprising. Also, how I mean, this film was made in 1959. Mm-hmm. They were pretty um, liberal as far as you know, talking about that these two these two characters hooked up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a kind of this one night stand, and, and they, you know, you don't think of a, a movie back in the 50s being that you know, um, uh, liberal talking about, about sex and that sort of thing, but they, they threw it out there. That that was kind of a surprise. Yeah, they had, there was a, there was a code back then that I might, I mean, I'll do some more research on the code, um, and, and talk about it next time, but there was a, a censor code back then that was a lot more strict than what they go by now. 
And yeah. there were things that, you know, some things would get through and some things weren't, wouldn't. Basically, uh, a lot of things that had to do with sex and drugs and alcohol and stuff like that wouldn't, would not work. And then there would, there was things like, uh, your bad guy, your bad guy in your film had to, what, how am I going to say that? He had to be punished in some way. Uh, so one, one thing we'll, we'll talk about when, uh, next month when we're talking about double in, indemnity is that because that film, the main character is the bad guy. Um, yeah. We, that's one of the things that, that they had to go by was that the bad guy has to be punished, you know, in, in the end. So, um, there was one thing in this film that didn't make it through the code. Um, there's a line where Cary Grant and, uh, and, uh, Kaplan are, uh, not Kaplan, Eve, Eve Kendall is her character's name. Um, when they're in that train car and they're making out and everything, mm-hmm. uh, she says a line that, I never discuss love on an empty stomach. But if you read her right. lips, what she actually says is I never make love on an empty stomach. <laughs> you know. Oh, so that that line funny. had to had to be redubbed and Hitchcock wasn't happy about that, but uh but he did it. Um I liked the movie. I thought it was good. It it, it had enough action scenes that it kept me engaged. Uh I love the way Cary Grant portrayed Thornhill. He was He's almost like a character that was taken out of a comedy and put into a thriller, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because uh, he he did and he said a lot of, of uh, funny things in in the movie. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I I really I really liked it too. I mean, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's Hitchcock and it's Cary Grant, so of course it, it's going to be good. But um, you know, this is like I said, this is the first time I've ever watched it all the way through, and. Uh, you know, it, it's cool now to see that famous scene uh, where that plane is chasing him. Yeah. That crop duster is chasing and shooting at him. You know, such an iconic scene now, and and so many people have have kind of parodied it and and used it, and it's kind of cool to now see to be able to see that scene in context. Right. And see how they used it and when they used it. Um, but yeah, for for a film that was made back in the fifties, the the production was good. The the climax at the end on on Mount Rushmore, I thought they did uh, really well as far as as the the sets go. Um, yeah, and it was it's it's a good little suspense film. Yeah, that scene you were talking about with the plane, um, I couldn't tell actually watching it but when going back and doing some research on the on the movie later the plane wasn't actually there you know the the way that they shot that scene was that they they took Cary Grant out into that field and they filmed some scenes of him running around mm-hmm. but then the scenes where you see him running and the plane is behind him that was all done in a studio and the plane was projected projected on a screen behind him Right, you know, so that he wasn't actually in danger of having this plane crash into him or something like that. But, uh, but you couldn't tell that watching it. I mean, just the way that no. Hitchcock shot it, it really looked like that plane was bearing down on him like that. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's a that's a compliment to Hitchcock's um, direction and and why he was so good because I think if you were to linger on that plane for a long time with with Cary Grant in the foreground the plane in the background you'd probably be able to tell eventually 
that oh this is this is projected you know but but the way Hitchcock uh, directed it it's so quick and the cuts are so quick and you know there's different angles and everything that uh, until you just told me I didn't even think about that I didn't even think that that the plane wasn't actually there I totally bought it yeah that's also a really odd place to have a bus stop <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought that too. I mean, way just out, out, in, just out the, middle in the middle of nowhere. nowhere. Yeah, a bus would just drop you off there, and you would just stand there in the middle of a cornfield and wait yeah. for another bus to come pick you <laughs> up. That's, that's, that's strange, but um, let's see. Okay, yeah, I, I, I didn't. I'm not gonna say I didn't like the end of the film. It's just that, and again, you know, spoiling a little bit. The at the very end. Thornhill is trying to save Kendall from falling off of Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And he grabs her and he goes to pull her up and then suddenly they're on the train in their honeymoon. So they just kind of cut away from the biggest action part of the film and they just cut to, hey, they're on their honeymoon. They got married and they're in this uh, in this train car. And then yeah. he pulls her up to the, to the top bunk of their cabin or whatever. I, I thought mm-hmm. that was a strange way to end an action scene. I don't know if it was a money thing. Hey, we... We've done all we can afford to do. <laughs> We've got to stop yeah. here. But uh, I did laugh because uh, when they're in their their cabin on the train, then they cut away and they show the train entering a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, that that's was, a little. That was a very a little suggestive. Yeah, that was that was uh, Hitchcock. Hitchcock liked to do those innuendos and stuff. Hitchcock was a dirty old man, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard as well. Yeah, have you ever seen the film that Anthony Hopkins did where he played Hitchcock? I have, yeah. Yeah, so basically, and I don't know how accurate that film is. I'm not going to say, you know, that it's an exact representation of Hitchcock's life or whatever, but the scene in Psycho where Norman Bates is uh is spying on the girl in 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 the shower mm-hmm. uh and they show that that the the hole is bigger on his side than it is on her side so that he can get a better angle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was all done because that Hitchcock actually did that to his actresses, <laughs> so that he could spy on them. <laughs> uh, that's 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 nice. Yeah, right. Um, that's great. I also I have to recognize uh, Martin Landau, even though he didn't have many lines. He was very yeah. very menacing as a henchman, and I barely recognized yeah, I, him because he was so young. I just yeah, I was just looking over the cast here. I just realized he was in the. And um, Eva Marie Saint, she's still she's still alive and kicking. She was just on uh, main appearance at the Oscars. Oh, just really? This year? Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, I, I didn't get to watch the Oscars this year. So, hey, has she been in something recently, or were they giving her like a lifetime achievement award or something like that? She was presenting oh, okay. something. I don't remember what it was, but yeah, she she acted up until 2014. Uh, she did some voice work in um, what was it? Legend of Korra. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so yeah, she's she acted for wow a long, long time. Yeah. And Martin Landau just he just passed away over the last year, couple of years, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, he did a good job in this movie, even though he didn't he didn't say much. And from what I right. understand, uh, Hitchcock didn't have to give him a lot of direction. He actually Landau did some things that he wasn't told to do that Hitchcock ended up liking and just leaving them in the movie. 
Landau said mm-hmm. that he was portray he was portraying his character, even though it was never said in the movie. He was portraying his character as being gay and in love with uh, with Van Damme. And uh, there's a there's one line in the in the film where he says uh, he's using his uh, women's intuition or something like that. It wasn't in the script, but he said it, and Hitchcock loved it, so he just left it. <laughs> he just left it in the oh, movie. That's funny. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock had had a great way of shooting these wide angles and stuff that I love, like uh, aerial views when he was crossing the street at the UN and things like that. They almost look like paintings. Yeah. Yeah, that... um, So, I was trying to think if that was an actual, like, aerial shot, if they actually did, uh, like, stick a camera outside of this giant building... Well, I know, that, I know when he's going into the building, when they're showing him from the front going into the building, now, Hitchcock didn't have a permit to shoot at the UN. So he hmm. just had Cary Grant go in, and he just oh. filmed him do it from the outside. <laughs> you know? Now, once he gets inside, I don't think they're, they're actually in the UN. I think they're on a set somewhere. But, right. But yeah, that, that aerial shot and, and everything. And, and the shots at the scene we were talking about before in the cornfield. You know, mm-hmm. some aerial shots from that that were pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of Hitchcock stuff still holds up today, as far as uh, some of the cinematic stuff that he was able able to accomplish with what it, he had to work with back then. It really does, and you can tell, uh, you know, the directors nowadays that that film thrillers and and suspense films. You can tell how influenced they were by Hitchcock because he was doing so many innovative things at the time that now so many filmmakers now mimic and and pay homage to and um, yeah that, that it's one of the reasons that his films are so uh, fun to watch and so enjoyable to watch. I've got a few facts that I wrote down about. North by Northwest. Um, one of them is what I said before about Jimmy Stewart wanting to be in the movie, but he wasn't. So. Mm-hmm. Um, out of what Hitchcock shot and what actually appeared on the screen, there were only five seconds of film that was that wound up on the cutting room floor. Oh wow! So he used everything, almost everything that he shot. So evidently, he knew in his head he knew exactly what he wanted to film, and he didn't waste any time doing it. He just he just filmed it, so that's, huh. that's pretty cool. Um, Hitchcock didn't want to go to South Dakota to into the forest to film those scenes that take place in the forest around uh, Mount Rushmore and everything. So he mm-hmm. had a hundred ponderosa pines planted on an MGM soundstage. I <laughs> I thought that those scenes in the forest looked kind of like they were on a set. They didn't really oh. look like they were actually in the forest to me. Oh yeah, yeah, very much. You could tell that that was definitely a set. Yeah, I grew I grew up in in rural uh, Alabama, so I've been in a lot of woods, a lot of forests in my time, and the trees are not normally that straight. <laughs> yeah, and that and, and that perfectly spaced apart, you know. So yeah, and I I feel bad for the the poor, you know, crew that Hitchcock said, oh yeah. Come and plant all these trees around this set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cary Grant was confused by the script 
and he didn't even figure out the whole story until he saw the premiere. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so he said he, he would just go to Hitchcock and he would complain. He would say, I, I, can't un- I don't understand what's going on here. I can't figure this out. <laughs> you know, Hitchcock's like, don't worry, it's working. Just just do the lines, just do the scenes. We'll do it scene by scene. So he would just film scene by scene what he was told to do. Mm-hmm. And then when it was all spliced together and, and edited and everything, then when he went to the premiere, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, Roger Thornhill is saved three times on his journey by Eve. Uh, he hides in the toilet on the train while she sends for, while she sends the police in the other direction. Uh, then she hides him in her bunk bed in their cabin and, and she gives him her shaving kit to disguise his face in the, in the station bathroom. In mm-hmm. Greek mythology, the hero often on a journey is always saved three times. So huh. that was kind of interesting to find out. And, uh, Alfred Hitchcock always, has a uh, cameo in his films, and uh, it's sometimes like a Where's Waldo game to f- kind of figure out where he sticks himself because he's always yeah. like in the background somewhere. But he puts himself in the very first scene of the film in this. He's the, he's the guy that's uh, at the bus stop, and he gets there just a second too late, and he misses the bus that gets the door closed in his face. So, oh, okay, that was his uh, his cameo there at the beginning of the film. Um, also some things that uh are in almost every Hitchcock movie he puts in this, like uh, hiding in the bathroom. Characters hide in the bathroom a lot in Hitchcock films, and he hides in the bathroom three times in this movie. And then, uh, and also, Thornhill has a very close relationship with his mother, which is also a, a, mm. uh, a Hitchcock thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the woman that played his mother was only like six or seven years older than he was. <laughs> Because I remember watching, I was watching this a couple weeks ago, and I was like, that doesn't look like she could be his mother. That should be his wife or something like that. Yeah. Carrie uh, Carrie Grant at this time was not a young man when he shot this. Yeah, this was later in his career. Yeah. Yeah. He looked conservatively 85. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Our, um, Our third movie for this episode is Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. And uh, it stars James Dean, Natalie Wood. I'm going to say Dennis Hopper because people always say that it stars Dennis Hopper, but Dennis Hopper had a very small role in this movie. And uh, Jim Backus, and directed by Nicholas Ray. This is... Alright, I'm just going to start... I'm going to go ahead and say it. I didn't really like this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I, I liked parts uh there there were certain scenes that i liked but overall no it it was uh this was a weird film yeah it's one of those movies that it's on all the lists of the classics that you need to see before you die and Mm -hmm. i have meant to go back and watch it so many times and just never actually done it now i've seen scenes from the film I mean, I've seen, like, that scene that they had, the, the knife fight at the planetarium. I've yeah. seen that a few times. But I've never actually sat down and watched it from beginning to end. I think it's one of those films that's famous because of reasons other than the movie itself. I mean, we're going right. to we'll talk about the movie first. But um, James Dean plays this guy named Jim Stark and he's a uh, teenager. He's gotten into a lot of trouble in his life and his family's kind of had to move around a lot because of the stuff that he does. 
he drinks, and he causes problems. Mm -hmm. The first time that we see him, he's drunk, and he's laying down on the street with this little toy monkey and stuff. Right. And, and he's, uh, and like he's, like he's going to go to bed. So he winds up at the police station, where apparently all the main characters from the film all got arrested that night for some reason. Yep, all at the same time. Yeah. They're all there at the exact same time. And it's supposed to be at like 3 o'clock in the morning on a school night. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, okay, so we meet the we meet Jim's parents. Jim's dad is Jim Backus, who would later play Thurston Howard the Third on uh, Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, all of Jim's problems stem from his from these parents. Yes, and I would agree with that. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it as a parent. Who I have a son that's roughly the age that James Dean was portraying in the film, even though he wasn't that age in real life. Yeah, again, an actor playing a teenager who yeah. looks like he's forty-seven. Right. Yeah, uh, you've got this mother who is constantly berating his father, and mm-hmm. you've got this father who does nothing but make excuses for his son's behavior. You know, he just he just keeps saying, "Well, he's not that bad. He's just this, or it's it's not his fault because of this, and all that kind of stuff." You know, but. The thing is, uh, we get told a lot about the fact that Jim has done some bad things, but we never really see him do anything bad. Uh, but we never hear what it is bad that he actually did. Why they had to move away from the place that they lived before. Unless, yeah. unless there was a throwaway line that I missed or something like that. But Yeah, it, it didn't seem like he was particularly, you know... He wasn't like a, a thug or anything. He wasn't. I mean, at the very beginning, he was drunk, so maybe that was part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, but you never saw him like do any drugs or anything like that. He just seemed like he he was just sick of his of his parents. He was sick of you know his his mother constantly getting on his father's case. He was sick of his father not standing up for himself, and he and he just he wanted to get away from that environment. That's that's what I took away from it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just I don't know if it's maybe it's because James Dean didn't really convince me of the character that he was trying to portray. I don't James Dean was a method actor, you know, so yeah. so he would like really get into these roles and and I don't know if you've ever seen um have you ever seen The Room? I mean the the the, the very I, terrible Tommy Wiseau. I have okay. Yes. So he stole a line from this from this movie where he says, <laughs> "You're tearing me apart." He did. You know. <laughs> yep. And when when I saw it, which I knew he had stole it from this movie, but when I saw it in this, that's all I could think of. Oh, okay, the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, the, James Dean. James, I'm not gonna say James Dean was a bad actor, because it, well, for one thing, this is the only thing I've ever seen that he was actually in. Um, yeah. He was one of these guys that probably would have become a very good actor later in his life if he had been mm-hmm. given the chance. He passed away after he filmed this. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he only did uh, like three movies, I believe. Yeah, he did this. Films. He was in East of Eden and something else. I can't remember what the other one was. But um, but yeah, and this was the. This was the last one they filmed. Only one of those films actually came out while he was alive. The other two came out after he had uh, after he had died. But I think some of the some of the supporting characters in this didn't really make a lot of sense to me because um, Natalie Wood's character is nice to him for two minutes at the beginning, 
and then mm-hmm. she immediately joins the bullies when they come around, you know, which is a, te- a typical teenager thing to do when you've got the new guy there. You're nice to him at first, but once you see that your friends aren't going to be nice to him, then you join them. But it just seems so, so, so it contrasted so much that it, it was just yes. weird to me. And, uh, and then there was that scene where she was at home and she, she tried to kiss her dad on the cheek and he got really angry about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that scene made me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know if they were leading up to something that I wasn't going to want to watch, you know, later. Yeah. It just kind of got dropped. I don't know if it was something that got cut out, uh, later. Well, there was, there was a lot of things in this movie that just got dropped. Yeah. That, I mean, in, in any typical movie like this you would think okay new kid comes to town you know there's this this main bully that is going to be the protagonist in the film uh you know the it's going to be the two alpha males trying to you know gain dominance yeah but (laughs) the the bully ends up dying in a fiery car crash (laughs) <laughs> driving off of a cliff 200 feet to his to his death. Yeah. And like and then, like the scene like he's introduced in one scene and then he dies in the next scene. Yeah, and then he's dead. And then they just completely bypass that that whole thing. Okay, he's dead. Moving on to something else. It was it was so bizarre. Yeah. And I I, I actually I actually went back and cuz I I was kind of freaking out like I was like, what is happening? My wife was wondering what was going on. I'm like, get in here. Watch this. And I replayed that scene, the the chicken scene. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, that is so weird. Like, that kid is now dead. Yeah. It, it was so bizarre. Yeah, and what the, the, the thing that was even stranger to me is that this whole film takes place in a 24-hour period. Because they say that the stuff at the police station at the beginning was roughly about 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff that happens uh, at the planetarium the next night is roughly about 3 o'clock in the morning. So it's a 24-hour period. So he meets this bully who is the boyfriend of Natalie Wood's character. Yeah. He meets this character that afternoon. He dies early in the evening. She's already <laughs> in love with Jim by the next morning. I mean, like yeah. she completely forgets about her that she just lost her boyfriend in the fiery yeah. car crash. Completely. Yeah. It was. Yeah. That all that is kind of strange. This, this movie, it, maybe it would have made sense if they had tried to make it take place over a a week or a month, mm-hmm. but to do it all in one day was was strange. But yeah, and then the, you got the fact that the uh, Buzz Buzz was uh, played by uh, Corey Allen. He was the bully. Um, he pulls a switchblade on Jim at the planetarium. Cuts him a couple of times. They get into a little knife fight. But then that night, he tells him, hey, I like you. You know? And they're, yeah. they're friends. And they get into... And they, but they then they, they do this drag race. And, uh... Yeah. Yeah, it was strange. And then you've got Plato. Plato never made any sense to me. I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, 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 nev- I never understood what his issues were supposed to be. Because when he's at the police station at the beginning, they're saying, why did you kill that puppy? You know, and uh, and then uh, he's just supposed to be this kid that's got problems. They never really say what his problems mm-hmm. are, why he's as weird as he is. Um, he he says to the he says to the girl that Natalie Wood is playing. He tells her that Jim is one of his really good friends, and 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 if you're a really close friend, he lets you call him Jamie. 
Well, Jim never said that. He never said he no. called me Jamie or anything like no. that. You no. Know? So uh, even though he's only known this guy for a couple of hours, you know, so. Yeah, uh, Plato was, ended up being basically a sociopath. Yeah. I, that well, that was another thing that was really bizarre. I mean, that storyline came out of nowhere. It's like after Buzz was killed, all of a sudden this kid goes off the rails. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's a picked on kid. Uh, he's living with this African American woman. I I don't know where his parents are. Right. Um, and all of a sudden he pulls a gun, and now he has a gun out of nowhere, and. And well, then you the know, way it's supposed to be explained is that when um, when Buzz was killed, yeah, um, Jim felt really really guilty because he thought that he had a big part in the kid dying or whatever. He wanted mm-hmm. to go to the police and turn himself in. He went to the police station in you know that he was going to turn himself in. Buzz's friends were at the police station. They thought that he was going to tell on him. You know, that they were involved in this accident or whatever, which, I mean, they didn't kill the guy, you know, he, Buzz killed yeah. himself. It was a, it was an accident because he was doing something stupid. But anyway, they were afraid he was going to go to the police and they were going to get in trouble. So they chased, uh, they followed him out to that, uh, that mansion that they go to. Yeah. The, the random mansion. Yeah. This, abandoned mansion. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and Plato has it in his mind that he's going to get a gun and he's going to go and protect Jim. That's why he takes the gun there in the first place is that he's going to protect Jim from those guys, which Anthony, mm. Anthony Hopkins is one of those guys. And, uh, was and, he really? Yeah. He was one of the, he was one of the bullies. I mean, there's one scene where you can see kind of close up of his face. You can tell that it's him, but like I said, it's just one of those things that, Hey, Anthony Hopkins, one of his first roles was in rebel without a cause. And, but if you didn't know that, you would never know that he was there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had no not, idea. not not Anthony Hopkins. I'm saying the wrong thing. It's Dennis Hopper. Oh, Dennis Hopper. Yeah, okay. Why do I why do I get yeah. Anthony Hopkins and Dennis Hopper? That's not the first time I've mixed them up. But anyway, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Plato goes to the mansion, and his his idea is that he's going to protect Jim from these thugs, and he does end up killing one of them coming down the stairs, and uh, and then yeah, uh, Jim basically has to talk him down. Mm-hmm. And get him to uh, to surrender himself to the police that have all gathered outside, and then even though he does all that, uh, when Plato goes outside, he freaks out, and he get he ends up getting gunned down by the police. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Who? It was funny because my my wife was watching it with me at this time um, because because she thought this movie was just as strange as I did, <laughs> and. She was saying, it's like, they aren't attending to this kid who had just been shot. Yeah. Like, everybody's giving attention to Jim while this kid is on the sidewalk bleeding out. Yeah. And quickly dying. But all the attention is on Jim. Right. The only person who is paying any attention to Plato is the African-American woman that, that he was living with. Yeah. And um, the police, no ambulance, nobody's paying attention to this kid who has just been shot to death by by the police. Yep. It was so strange. Yeah, and then you've got James Dean giving an overly dramatic portrayal. Uh, there's a scene. I don't, did you ever watch The Sopranos when it was on? 
I never did. No. Okay. There's a scene in one episode of The Sopranos where uh, uh, one of the characters, his name is Chris on the show, and his the actor's name is slipping my mind right now, but uh, he wanted to be an actor, and he goes to an acting class. And he acts out a scene with a couple of other guys, and they never actually say that it's Rebel Without a Cause. And I had never seen Rebel Without a Cause, so I didn't realize that they were acting out this scene until I saw this yeah. scene, you know. And there's a there's a scene there's a part of that scene where he he holds his hand out and he screams, I have the bullets. And I didn't know what that I was just like, man, that's really dramatic. And then I saw this and I was like, oh well, he was actually kind of spot on. <laughs> he was like, I have the bullets. Because the thing is, uh, Jim had pulled the bullets out of the gun and then given mm-hmm. the gun back to Plato. Plato didn't know he didn't have any bullets in his gun. And then when they yeah. go outside, uh, the police shine a light in their face and Plato freaks out and he pulls the gun out and he, he ends up getting shot. And then James Dean holds his hand up and says, I had the bullets. You know, so uh, yeah, that 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 whole scene—it was supposed to be like a heart-wrenching scene, and to me, it just played out as overly dramatic and uh, unnecessary. Yeah, I was I was thoroughly confused and kind kind of laughing to myself pretty much for the last thirty to thirty-five minutes of the film. I was just constantly laughing to myself how ridiculous it was. Yeah. I think I think I can see why people think that this is a significant film because it was probably really important to teenagers at the time. I think the teenagers mm-hmm. in the late fifties probably didn't have a lot of movies like this that they felt dealt with things that that they deal with. Even though the people that actually wrote the film didn't really know how to write teenagers, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense, you know. Yeah, 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 it makes perfect sense. Yeah, he's uh, it, it, it's but it's it's dated. And it's not that great of a film. It's got a legacy because a month before it was released, uh, James Dean died in a car crash. Yeah. Uh, like I said, he had, on, he had only made three movies. So I think he was going to become a, consist- a consistently uh, good actor as he got older. But when he died, this film is basically what we have of his legacy. So so I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why it's... Uh, why it's regarded the way it is. And he's not the only star from this movie to die tragically because uh, Natalie Wood drowned Mm -hmm. when she was out boating with uh, her husband at the time was Robert Wagner. This was in the 80s, 1981. Christopher Walken was on the boat too. And she just, she wound up in the water and nobody knows why. And she drowned. And um, they never solved that. But in the last few months, they've actually named Wagner as a person of interest Though I doubt that he actually uh, ever faces any charges for it because he's about 85 now. Yeah, I, I doubt <laughs> that too. So, uh, and I think the the guy that played Plato, I think he was uh, stabbed to death in the 70s. Oh, geez. In some kind of a robbery or something like that. So, uh, so yeah. And then you know Den- Dennis Hopper, he he passed away after he uh, he fell a few years ago and hit mm-hmm. his head or something. He died shortly thereafter. So. Um, I wrote down some facts about this movie as well. Uh, the scene with the toy monkey at the beginning was improvised by James Dean because they had been shooting for 24 hours straight and he was really tired and wanted to lay down. So he picked up a toy monkey that some passerby had, had given him 
and uh, he just decided to lay down in the middle of the street with it, like it says teddy bear, and uh, and they filmed it, and they ended up using <laughs> using it in the film. Yeah. Um, the reaction that that James Dean and Natalie Wood had to Plato's socks was real because that actor ac- accidentally put on a mismatched pair of socks, and they mm-hmm. re- and they realized it in that scene, and they reacted to it, and they just they they kept it in the film. Uh, Sal. Yeah, Sal Mineo, who played uh, Plato, he was stabbed to death in 1976. The pool that was uh, the empty pool that they used in that mansion scene, yeah, was actually owned by J. Paul Getty, who, if you don't know, he was the subject of the movie or one of the subjects of the movie, All the Money in the World. Uh, he was like the richest person in the world at the time, and. Yeah, the whole scandal with his, yeah, with his grandson being kidnapped and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. he owned that property that the that the pool was on. Uh, Frank Mazzola, who plays a character named Crunch in the film, I think he was one of the gangsters. He was an actual street gang member when he was a student at Hollywood High School. He was a member of the gang called the Athenians, and as such, he served as a technical advisor to director Nicholas Ray, and he coached other actors as to street gang attitudes and mannerisms. <laughs> he was a thug advisor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in 2007, uh, uh, the movie line, You're Tearing Me Apart, was voted as number 97 of the 100 greatest movie lines by Premier Magazine. Tommy Wiseau famously ripped off the line for The Room. Uh, James Dean was injured several times while shooting the switchblade fight during which a real weapon was used. He actually, the director called cut because uh, he had some blood on his ear and the director thought, oh, he's actually injured. So he called cut. James Dean got angry because he messed up his method acting. <laughs> don't call don't call cut when I'm in the character. <laughs> you know. That's funny. So, uh, Jim Stark was so new to the neighborhood that he didn't know how to get to the school. Yet at the Griffith Park Observatory, he parked his car at a spot, at, in a spot at the very bottom of a very steep rise alongside the long building that you that cannot even be seen from the road in front of the observ- observatory. So he knew how to get to the observatory, and he knew where to park and all that kind of stuff, even though he didn't even know how to get to school <laughs> earlier in the day. Yeah, and that uh, apparently. You, you know, if, if you're having a field trip, if there's any, like, seniors with cars, they can just go ahead and just drive there yeah. themselves. That was the, 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 there was a sign on the wall that just said, field trip, seniors be at the observatory by 2 o'clock or something like that. Yeah. So they, all right, we'll just go. Um, that observatory has appeared in a lot of films uh, since then because it's, it's just a, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a, a prime shooting place for a lot of films. Most recently, I think it was used in La La Land. Uh, yep. For a pretty pretty important scene in that film. Uh, the film was banned in New Zealand in 1955 uh, by Chief Windsor Gordon. Why in New Zealand 1955? I thought the film didn't come out until 59. I don't know. But anyway, it was it was banned in New Zealand by Chief Censor Gordon Mirams out of fears that it would incite teenage delinquency, only <laughs> to be released on appeal the following year with some scenes cut. In Britain, the film was released with an X rating. Oh wow! Because of the, I guess because of the violence. Because there wasn't any like there wasn't any sex, not in the version that I watched. <laughs> no, me neither. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I guess the the knife fight and the horrific 
fiery car crash. Yeah. And the the reference to Plato killing puppies. <laughs> I guess yeah, that too. Um Okay. So that's uh that's our first three movies for the uh, classic movie series. Uh we want to hear from you guys. We want to we want you to tell us what you think of the three movies that we talked about today. Uh you can get in touch with the show by visiting our Facebook group. Just uh, search, go to Facebook and search for Cosmic Potato, and you'll you'll find our group. And uh, leave us leave something there for us to to see. And you can find us on Twitter. You can also send us a text message or a voicemail. All you got to do is dial area code 205-642-8380. and we'd love to hear from you. And I'll share your messages here on the show. And if you've got ideas for classic films that you'd like for us to watch. We'd love to to work those into the show. Um, you can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict on the Android Store, and we're on SoundCloud. Wherever you find the show, make sure that you leave us a rating and a review so that we can help more people find the show. And all the stuff that I just said is on our website at CosmicPotato.com where we got an entire network that you'll find of a bunch of shows like we got Captain Game Show, The Prime Direction, World War G, Review of Mania, and uh, if you go to your favorite podcatcher and just put in Cosmic Potato Podcast Network, you can subscribe to a special feed that I've created that will automatically deliver new episodes of every show that we put out. So you can just subscribe to that one feed. You'll get everything that that, that we publish. Mm-hmm. And, Which I did just recently, and it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm constantly every every time a new a new episode comes out for any of the shows, I put it on that feed. Plus, you know, we, you've got all the individual feeds that you can that you can subscribe mm-hmm. to as well. But uh, so next month we're gonna we're gonna dive into a few more films. If you guys want to watch those films ahead of time, I'll give you the titles we're gonna be talking about. Uh, the first one will be The Third Man, starring Orson Welles, Joseph oh, Cotton, boy. and directed by Carol Reed. Spoiler alert! It's kind of hard to watch. It's a little, a little bit. It's, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's not hard to watch because there's difficult things to see. It's just, it's kind of tedious and it's a little boring. There's parts in it that I like that we'll get into it next month. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, Rear Window, starring uh, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, and Raymond Burr. Excuse me, Raymond Burr, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And then mm-hmm. also uh, Taxi Driver from 1976. Starring Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard, Albert Brooks, directed by uh, Martin Scorsese. Another spoiler alert, that one is hard to watch, but because of things that you see in the film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. So, uh... <laughs> All right, Troy, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, everybody, make sure you check out World War G uh, that Troy does with AJ and Colton, uh, available here on the network. And uh, thank everyone for listening. Until next time, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, Troy thanks you, and I thank you. Very nice.